Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Today is part five of our six-part series on multi-domain command and control sponsored by Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Joining us today are Brian Clark, the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. He's a retired United States Navy commander and submariner and strategist and technologist par excellence. Uh, and my old friend, Greg Grant, an ace former reporter who went into government serving on the senior staffs of four defense secretaries. He is now a senior advisor with the Special Competitive Studies Project, the nonprofit that emerged in the wake of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, truly one uh, of the most significant such commissions that we've had in a very long period of time. Uh, Brian and Greg, thanks so very much. It's great having you on the program. And Greg, thanks very much for your maiden outing on the program. Thank you, Vago. Very excited to be here. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, before we get started, HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. As I mentioned, Ultra uh, Intelligence and Communications not only sponsors this series, but our broader command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Guys, thanks very much again for joining us uh, to discuss on what has become a, you know, a very long series of conversations uh, on this topic. Um, uh, Join all domain uh, command and control is what it was known by. It's been the Pentagon's top priority for uh, years, but there's also considerable confusion on where we are now and where we're going. Uh, the Pentagon has renamed it Combined Joint All Domain Command uh, and Control. That's very good news because we were wondering whether or not there was going to be, uh, again, the kind of disconnect that exists between the United States and its allies whenever the United States sort of surges ahead uh, in uh, connectivity, but it also introduces complexity to, to the program. Um, the challenging piece of this is not only is there a DOD effort, but increasingly sort of underground or Samizdatist service uh, specific efforts uh, to drive uh, the ball forward. Uh, then there's sort of confusing rhetoric, you know, JADC2 or CJADC2, it's not a destination, it's a journey, which a lot of people look at as sort of a language that suggests that we're really not being uh, serious. Brian, why don't you start us off because you've joined us for many of these conversations over the years, going back to when I used to have the TV show. Where does this effort stand now? And are we clear and is the department clear about what it is that it is trying to accomplish at this point? Because the Biden administration did have a reset, I think an important reset, uh, you know, as Frank Kendall used to say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Where are we? And do we actually know, does the department know what it wants to accomplish? Yeah, Vago. Um, yeah, it is, as you said, it's been a journey. So the so where we are now is, is sort of JADC2 originated with this idea of trying to create near universal connectivity between the forces of the different services. So, uh, you know, kind of an aspirational goal for uh, being able to allow any sensor to talk to any shooter, talk, you know, talk to any commander. That was the basic idea. So since then, the, the departments realize that that's probably not achievable in any sort of realistic time frame you know, or budget constraint. Um, so now we sort of evolved over the last couple of years to where JADC2 and now combined JADC2 uh, is increasingly about being able to integrate specific uh, mission threads. So specific force packages, specific con ops that uh, operational commanders need to employ or want to employ you know, to be able to deal with their challenges. 
So we've gone from this sort of universalist approach to now something that's much more, you know, kind of grounded in you know specific things that we think we need to do, and then we'll build out that that connectivity, build out the appropriate uh, command and control systems, uh, and then we'll work from there, and eventually we'll expand, you know, the amount of connectivity in the forest and the amount of adaptability. Um, that's that's sort of the, the long, you kind of the broad philosophical change that's happened in JADC2. And it's reflected, I mean, it still reflects the original strategy of JADC2, which is we want to create a more adaptable, flexible, resilient force. So those are the, the goals, and those goals are still, you know, what the department's pushing for. But the means by which it gets there is very different. You know, now it's not, we're not going to create you know, radios that talk to every other radio. We're going to now focus on integrating um, mission threads you know, and combinations of systems around particular missions. And so there's been a bunch of changes in OSD and the services to enable that. So on the OSD um, side, we I, I could talk about that. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. So, so on the OSD side, you know, we've seen within um, the R&E enterprise, so research and engineering, um, Heidi Shu has reorganized that, uh, that branch to uh, have a new assistant secretary of defense for mission capabilities. Um, that's uh, Tom Browning. Um, he is now creating a, a, an organizational construct there to use the R&E um, toolbox, you know, DARPA, SCO, all these other offices uh, to bring in, you know, technologies that help knit together uh, particular mission threads that the combatant commanders want to do. Um, on the ANS side in, in acquisition and sustainment, uh, Dave Tremper is setting up this office called AI2 or Acquisition Interoperability and uh, Integration. And they're focused on once we identify useful combinations of systems, how do we go buy that? How do we go buy the pieces of that in a, in a coherent way? Uh, and then also we've got the CDAO, the Chief Data, uh, Data and AI Office. Um, and they are, uh, uh, being put in charge of the digital integration. So making sure that the data flows, the communication links, the, the information can flow between the pieces of these mission threads. Uh, and Congress is now making some changes that enable that via the appropriations bill that's currently on the Hill, which provides a JADC2 funding line or funding portfolio that's given to CDAO for the purpose of this digital integration. So that's kind of the big picture in terms of what's happened over the last you know, year approximately. Um, Greg, uh, you were uh, part of an administration uh, where uh, sort of this became uh, a priority. I think Chuck Hagel was defense secretary. Bob Work was your uh, boss. And uh, Bob was formulating some of the concepts to better integrate U.S. forces to make a smaller force more powerful. Uh, and Bob's focus on AI, for example, was integral to help achieve a multiplicity of goals, including help and in, uh, battle management uh, and fighting a, a far larger and growing Chinese military. What's your take on where you know, sort of the journey we've been on, but the seriousness with which we are taking this, especially given increasingly, it seems like the services are doing their own thing. Uh, the joint staff is doing its own thing. And then it appears like OSD is doing its own thing, which is not necessarily the best approach to actually have everything sort of come together. I'm going to ask a, a broader sort of how to merge these streams in, in a moment, but just wanted to kind of get your sense on where we are now. Yeah, sure. So I'd like to, to kind of begin with, uh, with first principles. And I think what we're really talking about here is, is combined arms warfare, right? So, you know, ever since the concern of uh, commanders went from coordinating separate actions of separate combat arms to coordinating and combining the actions of different arms to maximize, you know, the effect of, of all the components of an armed force. Because we know from history that, a, you know, a carefully adjusted mix of different weapons almost always proves superior to a single weapon. 
because ultimately he said we'll develop countermeasures to reduce and limit of, you know, weapon effectiveness. For that reason, you know, separate combat arms and weapon systems must be used in concert. And so that, you know, I think we've got to keep those, those ideas in mind. I mean, if, and to pull a little bit from uh, offset strategy history, uh, it was interesting when I was, was reading, reading some comments by William Perry from back in the 1970s when he was describing what they were trying to do with, uh, right. with the battle network. He said, the objective of our precision-guided weapon systems is to give us the following capabilities, to be able to see all high-value targets on the battlefield at any time, to be able to make a direct hit on any target we can see, and to be able to destroy any target we can hit. So here we are decades later pursuing many of the same objectives. And I think I firmly believe, and this is, this is what uh, Bob Rook was trying to convince um, you know, DOD at the time, back in the, the August days of the third offset strategy was that, you know, ultimately a fight to defeat a potential PLA invasion of Taiwan will come down to a volume of fires as most battles in history do, particularly air, air and naval contests. As we're seeing in U daily in Ukraine, the dominance of fires, specifically indirect and long-range fires, artillery, rockets, and missiles in that case. And a Taiwan scenario is, is really no different. So the question is, can we generate a sufficient volume of fires, particularly in those, right. those critical initial days, to defeat a PLA, uh, you know, potential uh, assault, you know, the PLA aircraft and landing ships? And wargaming and simulation at the time, back then, showed that a viable approach is to be able to uh, launch sustained multi-axis attacks to overwhelm the PLA C2. Right. But the problem is the Joint Force just has, 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 has lacked that, ca that capacity to exploit multi-axis attacks because it has to be able to coordinate those attacks. And that will require a theater and multi-service approach to generate sustained fires. And again, this was this is one of the charges that, uh, that Bob Work made to the, to the force. Um, but the problem is, is, is we all know, you know, the joint task forces are typically organized by domains, air component, land component, maritime component, and, and that's just a suboptimal way of organizing. And the joint force, to be most effective, it must have the ability to see and act across domains without artificial seams and stovepipes. And well, some people will say, that, you know, we do this now, but, you know, but we really don't, especially at the theater and global level. Level instead we fight in domain and functional stovepipes. If you think I'm wrong, ask some ask someone how we we would deconflict airspace between interdiction, cast, and artillery over Ukraine if NATO is involved, and make sure they tell you the different systems they would use. You will find that at some point we are still doing de deconfliction by human voice, and that just simply won't work in future fights. So I I think the organizing principle behind JETC just makes tremendous sense. Of course, I think we'll get into. It. Yeah. how it's being instantiated but by the way i absolutely love uh your invocation of suboptimal uh <laughs> i think that that was uh that was that was wonderful um and i want to i want to get into this on uh the herding of the cats that's going to be uh the question that's going to go to you mr former uh perched on ivory, ivory tower <laughs> greg grant <laughs> uh but brian walk us through right each of the services has their own plans to advance the ball, right? The Air Force has the advanced uh, battle management system. Uh, there was Project Convergence for the Army. It's Project Overmatch for the Navy. Over the years, right alliances have formed and disbanded. Um, where do each of the services stand right now in what they are doing? And what does the addition of the word combined necessarily 
means. Because the good news, you know, right, a lot of us had that concern that we weren't integrating with our allies and partners. Um, you know, uh, Rob Bauer, the NATO military chairman, uh, the very, uh, you know, qualified Dutch admiral said, look, we're making a lot of progress on that. You know, it, it was a concern, but but at least we've, we've seemed to have addressed that going back even many months ago. Walk us through where each of them are and what the addition of the word combined means to what it is that they're doing. Yeah, Vago. So um, I will build on, let me just build quickly on something that Greg said about, you know, the volume of fires being really important in success in a China-Taiwan conflict. Um, you know, what, what the services are dealing with is not so much the, it's partly the volumes of fires, but it's also just making sure that the fires hit the right thing at the right time because of our munitions limitations that are always going to be there uh, because we're the expeditionary force, you know, fighting a home team. So we're always going to be at a somewhat of a disadvantage in terms of how many fires we have available to us. So when you look at what the services are actually trying to analyze and the challenge they're working through is, it's it's all about making sure that you're doing the right weapon target pairing and that, that weapon is actually hitting a target, not a decoy. And so JADC2 becomes really important because I need to be able to you know, integrate a mission thread that combines you know, the right sensor with the right weapons platform you know, with the right uh, target update platform because something's going to have to give me that target update at the last minute to be able to make sure I hit the right target. So the volume of fires translates into an efficiency of fires almost challenge. And that's where JADC2 becomes very important because if it was just about volume by itself. And, you know, obviously you could try to overwhelm your opponent um, with a large number of weapons, but we don't have that luxury. But then, you know, shifting to the services, you know, so, you know, the, the services, as you said, they're kind of all pursuing their own individual efforts, which were in theory tied to the you know, broader JADC2 strategy that the joint staff, J6, was, uh, had described and, and led. Um, but now, in the last year, they've sort of all diverged and now they're kind of focused on individual service equities in a lot of ways. So uh, ABMS, and I know you had... Um, uh, uh, Brigadier General Valencia on to talk about this, but they're focused on an architectural design, which is really innovative, but it's really applies to the Air Force's way of doing command and control. So they're trying to build out a command and control or C3 architecture um, to support the Air Force. The Navy with Project Overmatch is doing a very you know, specific integration of carrier strike groups before they deploy um, to support them more efficiently conducting comms and command and control once they're out uh, overseas. <clears throat> and then you've got the Army with Project Overmatch just working on improvements to their you know, air, air, air land battle you know, concept essentially from the 1980s, but looking at ways to improve their uh, ability to do cross-domain warfare um, and uh, combined arms warfare, um, but m mainly with Army units supported by a small number of Air Force units. So it's, it's very much you know, service-specific stuff designed more or less to support their POM development, but it is to support JADC2. And that's why you see the combatant commanders getting frustrated with the speed or the efficacy or the relevance of what's happening in JADC2 and why you've seen this shift uh, on the part of OSD to instead, you know, let's focus on mission integration of you know, specific mission threads around the problems that operational commanders are facing. We'll build that out and then we'll, you know, eventually get to this more universal, you know, connectivity that the original vision aspired to. Um, so you've really got two parallel efforts. The services are doing something to support their own equities and interests. OSD and the, and, uh, the COCOMs are working a different path to focus on what COCOMs are worried about. Um, and we'll, yeah, I think we're probably going to see both these paths carry on uh, over over the next several years. 
Um, Greg, uh, you know, I mentioned your ivory uh, tower uh, perch and your uh, case, right? Your first principles case was spot on the mark on why it is we need to do this and why it's got to be uh, a priority. The, each of the services are doing things to move the ball forward, right? To improve uh, that kind of uh, secure connectivity that we need to help make the magic happen. But at the same time, you need leadership and sometimes very tough leadership to drive the ball, right? Uh, Bob Work uh, tried it. Uh, the criticism of, of Bob was that he was uh, brilliant, but sometimes not as uh, uh, brutal as he needed to be without being too critical, right? Uh, you know, always seeing the merits of, okay, I, I get that point. I understand it as long as, you know, you, you were moving the ball forward. What's it going to take from a leadership perspective to get the kind of focus you need to, to basically herd what can be uh, very headstrong and occasionally quarrelsome cats and get them moving in the same in the right direction and doing it at speed. I mean, I think everybody, time is the most important factor here. And I just get this sense that absent, you know, I mean, it's great to have try to let a thousand flowers bloom, but at some point, somebody's got to drive the process forward. No, no I totally agree. And it, it, you know, I did have the, the, the opportunity to serve under a few different secretaries of defense and, and all of whom had very different management styles. And, and getting to your point of, you know, this top, there, need, there absolutely has to be top-down direction. And I would say the model to emulate as, uh, as uh, ruthless as it, as it could be was that of Robert Gates. And as we all know, he um, famously fired leadership of the Air Force when they were not, uh, you know, towing the line of where he wanted the, the services to go. Um, but I just think that the, you, you really, at some point, are going to need, you know, some really strong top-down direction. Now, that was, It's interesting, that was when, when Bob Work was, and Bob Work is such a nice guy, but uh, when he was, before he was kind of launching the third offset strategy effort, he, he was meeting and talking with a number of the, the kind of the second offset strategy folks. And and that was one of the one of the primary lessons that they tried to drive home with him is that look at to get anything done and especially something that's you know the muscle movements you're trying to make you absolutely must have that top down direction and the, you know as we all know that the, the the huge challenge right in, in acquiring JADC two or making progress in JADC two is just the current DoD construct the services control most of the budget authority so we we kind of rely on the services to work together to make JADC two a reality now my understanding is. Of what DOD CIO is doing is focused on distributed cloud capability, which is critical to enabling JAD C2, but it's not all that is needed. I think, I think that now that we have the joint warfighting concept, we need to see some kind of JROC approved joint requirement for JAD C2, and then for the, for the deputy DSD to direct acquisition for a shared theater and, and, and global level command and control architecture, either through ANS and RNE. And I think, you know, Brian referenced some of that. And from what I understand, I am hearing really good things about what Brigadier General Luke Cropsey is, is doing um, in the Air Force. Uh, he's probably got the best domain agnostic architect architectural approach within government. Um, outside of government, I think Andrew is probably the leader, though I could be wrong, as I'm sure I've not seen everything. And then, um, you know, RE is, 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 has some projects that, you know, the original. DARPA project, Assault Breaker 2 has got some components to this. There, you know, there's a lot of C command and control pieces out there, but you, you ultimately need some integration. I think that's where RE can provide some real value as an integrator. 
And one of the most important things they can do with this and emphasize at this stage is clarity of purpose and desired end state. Define and focus exactly what, what we're looking for, you know, what we want out of JADC2 with an emphasis on, and Brian's hit these points as well, with emphasis on improving sensing and decision-making at speed and effects and, and planning and engagements at speed and scale. And then build it from the bottom up with top-down guidance where you leverage the service initiatives and their legacy programs fielded today. And I, I, and, and Brian mentioned the COCOMs, and I, I actually think what, what's going on out of Indo-PACOM right now is really, really interesting, what they're doing with, the, with joint fires, and it, it's probably the, the right approach for now. I mean, there, there are a lot of good service capabilities that will come online in the next few years. Just right now, there's not a lot out there that can bring together that whole common operational picture that, um, you know, that Admiral Aquilino wants for, for, for persistent targeting. You know, and to be able to see echelon one through four, you know, such as, you know, what's a loadout on a carrier task force and what weapons are available, where the ships are, how prepared are they to carry out ops? Um, you know, the Navy does this ship for ship, but, no way, but there's really no way to do this at the joint level. level. You know, similar, similar with the Army readiness of different units in theater, you know, and Brian emphasized the munitions challenge. And you know, this is it, this is going to be a problem going forward because so many of these weapons are going to be, you know, you know, theater level decisions, you know, weapons such as PRISM and some of these others. Um, so the, you know, the theater commander just doesn't have a good visibility on weapons and status of forces. And that's even more important, you know, with these, with the, the munition stockpile situation that we have. So, you know, Admiral Aquilino, he's going to need, he's going to need that info across all echelons so he can make very tactical decisions of when to gauge. And you know, some might think that's probably a bad idea, but he, you know, in the initial days of any kind of a conflict with, you know, putting up stuff against a nuclear armed adversary, you're going to, you're going to need to be able to control escalation. And then ultimately, as, as things kind of, uh, you know, become more dynamic, then begin to delegate down and, and let distributed ops kind of take, you know, take place. But we need, you know, we need those networks that can handle denied environments and understand a commander's intent. And a lot of that, too much of that is done by chat today and not a lot done by, you know, machine to machine to get, but to get speed, you really need machine to machine. And there's just, there's too much reliance on deliberate planning and not enough reliance on that dynamic planning. And that's one of the interesting insights, I think, coming out of Ukraine is, is the Russians inability to do really any kind of effective dynamic targeting. It's a real weakness. Great point, Greg. Uh, and, you know, I was uh, reminded, you, you mentioned the Russians and uh, you talked about Bill Perry in the second offset. The the Russians' discussion of a reconnaissance strike complex was actually them describing what it is that we were doing uh, and, and demonstrated uh, in the first Gulf War, right? This sort of unprecedented ability to sort of see things, see them through sandstorms, to be able to strike them uh, in a in a and with precision uh, in in a way uh, that uh, really was revolutionary in the in the history of warfare. The trouble is, everybody else now has benefited from that technology, and if, if you can see it, you could strike it, and you can uh, potentially uh, kill it. Um, we're it's sort of um, just, just br briefly, uh, Brian. Um, on on the leadership point, right from from your standpoint, what's it going to take to kind of get us there? Uh, because you know we're now in the back half of the administration, uh, and it makes it harder to do a big lift at this point and and crack a whip, right? I mean, for better or for worse, and there was a lot of criticism of Secretary Gates's uh, techniques or whether or not it, it made sense to fire the top two guys. Uh, in the Air Force, who were talking about the importance of getting ready for China as well, while while they were fighting the current war, 
What's your sense on what's it going to take? And is the current organizational structure sufficient in an assistant secretary level? Or do you need, you know, Stone Cold Lloyd Austin to, you know, start to break some backs and crack some knuckles in order to try to get the ball moving more? You know, to, to, to Greg's point, you know, there, there are some great work going on um, out of the COCOMs in terms of looking at how to establish the level of, you know, connectivity they need to support, you know, particular operations that they need to do according to their, their expectations and plans. Um, so like the, the work that Indopaycom is doing with the Joint Fires Network, uh, being able to kind of build out what's necessary to um, you know, deliver the rate and, and the type of fires they need at, at different times in a, in a conflict with China um, should be driving the services to make the required investments. And as you said, I mean, that, that doesn't happen necessarily. Like I said, the experimentation that services are all doing around JADC2 is is oriented around things they want to solve for their own, you know, equities or their own, you know, uh, service-led initiatives. Um, they they might those might you know in turn benefit uh, you know the cocoms in terms of connectivity, but they're not fundamentally oriented around that. They're oriented around making the services uh, capabilities operate more effectively. So you need this you know intervention intervention on the part of OSD, and, and like I said. Uh, we've now set up an assistant secretary of defense for mission capabilities. Um, we've established some offices in uh, ANS, and we've also got the CDAO that are now empowered to go, you know, intervene here and be able to knit together these uh, effects chains, you know, that that uh, the joint fire network requires, uh, for example. Um, the challenge will be, you know, these investments are normally, you know, something that doesn't benefit the service. It's some connectivity or some command and control tool that helps the, you know, service, one service talk to another service, or it helps go across domain. There's no benefit to the, you know, that's not an equ- a service equity that's going to be serviced there. So, yeah, the services are not incentivized to make those kinds of joint investments, that the glue that would hold together uh, a mission threat or a kill chain. So, you know, either the OSD offices are charged with spending that money themselves, which is what's going to happen, I think, as part of the appropriations bill that's currently on the Hill, um, or, you know, OSD directs the services to make these investments against their will. Um, and I think the, fir- the where we're going to probably go is the first, you know, the, the former, which is where we're going to have CDAO making these investments uh, to put the glue together to allow these effects chains to be put in place so that, you know, the Joint Fires Network and other COCOM uh, needs can be addressed, you know, in a JADC2 type of way. Um, and then the services are probably going to continue to trundle down the same on, which is you know doing their own thing and hoping that that eventually benefits the operational commander downrange. Greg, I want to, uh, you to take a bite at this next one. And I've got two questions uh, left for each of you in, in roughly the eight or so minutes we've got left. You're with the Special Competitive Studies Project. Obviously, that's focusing on AI and uses of AI across society in an ever more competitive landscape. Uh, Dr. Eric Schmidt and uh, Bob Work led the National uh, uh, Commission uh, on uh, AI, um, uh, the National Security Commission on AI. What's the balance, Greg, between technology and culture? Because you know, of the folks I've spoken to on and off the record, they say actually like 90% of this is actually cultural changes we need to make, uh, as opposed to necessarily technological solutions, that if we get actually the cultural pieces of this right, the rest of it flows. I want to get both of your senses on on that before the last question, which is what is it we need to do next? Greg, start us off. 
Well, Vago, I think you're exactly right. We do need a, a you know cultural changes across the board to uh, you know more willingly embrace um, some of these ideas. I you mentioned um, you know you know mentioned some of the Cold War um, luminaries talking about this, and it's it's interesting to look back at some of the some of the things Andrew Marshall was saying back in the 1990s, where he was he was saying he was he was looking at you know what what a revolution in military affairs would really look like. And, and, and he, he, he identified the two main components, you know, first being long range precision strike. Um, but second, you know, the information, the, the, the information dimension becomes increasingly central to the outcome of battles. And, and we're just seeing that uh, uh, take place now. And, uh, you know, he said this in the, in the late 1990s and I, and not by accident, I don't think that, you know, China's Academy of Military Sciences, uh, Science and Military Strategy a few later, few years later, it comes out with uh, identifying information as the key target in modern warfare. And you know, again and again in war games, we, we were doing it in DoD back in the day. It was it illustrated the fight for information dominance was central to to each and to all scenarios. Um, and, and let me just make I, I want to make a, an interesting or an important point on on culture. I I hope. That the services, I hope DOD is really taking an advantage of gleaning lessons from what's coming out of Ukraine right now. I mean, there's, it's emerged as it, the, the fighting there has emerged as an, a, a really unprecedented opportunity to glean vast amounts of data about how Western system, weapon systems really operate. I mean, I go back to a, a quote Frank Kendall made recently where he said, you know, one of the big unknowns with, with weapon systems today is just how they will perform against the enemy system. Will they work as advertised? And we're just seeing, you know, this example of uh, in Ukraine, or it's it's just, it, daily on how people, you know, in, interact with machines, how they behave under fire. It's an it's an enormously valuable resource for weapon system development and cultural development. It's become a really a critical proving ground for new military technologies and a crucible of innovation, both at the uh, you know kind of the tactical and operational level, and and. I really, really hope DOD is, is gleaning many, many lessons and pulling as much data out of there because, I mean, look, we've got, we've got the Russians are unveiling, uh, you know, their most valuable capabilities, their war reserve capabilities, particularly their, their electronic warfare systems. I mean, it's, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing them using uh, what, what would be the most, you know, the, the, the jewels of the crown, if you will. So, um, that's one of, again, that's just one of my hopes is that, it, that right. we, can, we can pull those lessons into today. Brian, address the cultural piece of it and the what has happened next. And I'm, I'm not impugning anybody who's involved in this that is trying to do the right thing. Everybody knows Catholics as tough as nails as the deputy and has been pushing on a whole number of fronts to, to, to drive the ball forward. It's just, the, you know, the concern is that it, irrespective of how hard people are working this issue, we're still not moving as fast as we, we need to be moving. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, I, I would argue it's maybe not so much cultural as just having the appropriate organizations and processes that kind of incentivize and drive the, the effort. Now that might be, you know, characterized as culture, but I think there's some, you know, mechanics you can put in place that would make JADC2 implementation happen more uh, effectively uh, without having to change the culture of the entire DOD. Um, so I think, you know, going forward, um, you really, we really need to incentivize 
those that do capability development to satisfy the kind of near-term needs of the combat commanders. And as Greg was saying, in Ukraine, that's exactly what they're using as the forcing function is what does the operational commander need? How do I put that together as quickly as possible using the tools that are available both commercially and militarily? Um, so in the DOD, we could see the same thing. The technologies are available today. The need is very urgent, as we've heard from many commanders about how you know China could be a near-term problem. So we can't wait for a long-term solution to this near-term problem uh, that China poses. So orienting the, the effort around the near-term efforts within OSD to deliver the glue that knits together service-delivered systems to be able to, to support the combat commander's mission threads. You could organize and create processes to do that. I think the DOD is already starting to do that with what they're doing with CDAO and uh, the AI2 office. Uh, and with the Mission Capabilities Office over in R&E. Um, the key will be um, getting the services on board so that this is not OSD knitting together the services things that they do on their own, but instead the services start, are starting to orient their own JADC2 efforts towards the combat commander's needs. I think that's the fundamental change that needs to happen is project overmatch, project convergence, AVMS all need to be reoriented towards what is what is NAVIR or NAVIR? Com need or not NEFCOM, uh, UCOM need, <laughs> what is pay, uh, Indo-PACOM need, um, and how do we orient our efforts in that direction rather than you know trying to satisfy long-term service equities. So that, that's the fundamental changes on the service side, but on the OSD side, I think they're creating a lot of the capabilities you would need to get that glue in place. Um, we, we have a minute left, so each one of you are going to get uh, 20 seconds on this. Um, Spaniard Valencia made clear that there are actually lessons throughout history. And then in World War II, we did this. It's just that the way that we, we delegated more authority, we, you know, there were a whole bunch of cultural things that we did that allowed, to, and Dusty Schultz talked about that uh, a little bit as well. Are there clear lessons of history from history that we should be learning in this point? And we can change it through training and approach um, to actually be able to get to where leaning on tech, you know, we've leaned on technology because we can, we made 25 radio calls to get Jim Mattis off a firebase because we could. Absolutely. There's, absolutely. There's lessons from history. I mean, I do, these, we have to understand these are age old problems. I mean, you go back and, and, and read the, you know, the history of, you go back to world war two, for example, and it's uh, you know, just one, one, one inter-service rivalry clash after another. Um, I mean, they, it's particularly in the Pacific theater, you know, the, the, Army Air Corps opposition to the you know the Navy's Navy strategy and uh, you know MacArthur wanting to do his own thing and Nimitz and, and opposing what MacArthur's trying to do. I mean, it's, yeah, this is this is as old as history. Um, but one one point I'd I, I'd want to make just as 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 we move forward on JetC two is we 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 just have to make sure that we don't look at it as as something that will solve all of our war fighting problems through technology, or, or I hate this phrase, lifting the fog of war, because fog and friction will, will exist despite JADC2. But I am convinced that, uh, that technology can help humans fight better, and we're seeing that in the Ukraine war, where uh, the Ukrainians are, are using uh, commercial and other technology to their, to their advantage. And um, again, I. I, I think that's that's where the lessons we should be learning are emerging today. Right. Yeah, Bago, I would say, you know, hearkening back to the very first study I did for DARPA when I had retired from the Navy was uh, looking at battle networks um, and how to succeed. 
The uh, two big takeaways were one, the side that adapts faster. We looked at the World War II example, the World War I example and the Cold War. Um, the side that adapted faster and was able to incorporate new capabilities more quickly was the side that tended to be more successful. Um, so JADC2 and this idea of you know, mission integration is really fundamentally about creating the ability for the force to adapt and, and you know, create new different kill chains or effects chains uh, in real time out in the field, you know, as Greg's been saying, as we've seen in Ukraine. The other big takeaway from the study was that um, you almost never win the war because you kill all the enemy. Um, you know, every conflict or every, if you take it down to even, you know, battles, um, one side usually retreats or withdraws or, you know, stops doing what they're doing because uh, they're just finding that they're ineffective. They've been marginalized or that they've, you know, they just can't achieve their objective. Um, so, we can exploit the fog of war as well. So if you're looking at China versus Taiwan, um, it's not just that we want to lift the fog of war, as Greg was saying, and try to make it easy for us to see everything. We also can make it hard for the Chinese to see what's going on, and we can use the fog of war against them. And uh, we don't have to kill every you know, Chinese ship to be able to succeed. We just have to make it so that the Chinese don't feel like they can, they can succeed on acceptable terms, which in a lot of ways is about making their battle you know, management harder, making their combat picture more more uh, uh, confusing, um, and then hitting enough of their forces that they don't seem like they're having an effective uh, uh, operation. So I think JADC2 is much more about, you know, that decision-making competition uh, than it is strictly about uh, maximizing the number of, you know, warheads on foreheads, if you will. Yeah, just if I can just add to, to Brian's point, because I think that was really important what he made. It's it, that, that this, is, this isn't just about, you know, lethality. Um, information is also the key to survivability on the battlefield. And it's central, central to helping determine whether or not you are someone else's target. You know, history right. shows that, you know, m most airplanes are shot down because they lost, uh, the pilots lost situational awareness, you know, and, and that's what we need to be able to provide that situational awareness acr across the force. And, it, and I, I like Brian's point that, that he made about, you know, countering that China's, um, you know, systems destruction warfare concept, you know, that was one of the points that John Boyd made, you right. know, people always like to reference the OODA loop, but he also said, you know, one of it's, in, as he wrote in Patterns of Conflict, one of the goals is to collapse the adversary system into confusion and disorder. And I just, I just right. love that idea. And, and we've got to keep that foremost in mind. Yeah, Guys, second uh, point. Uh, guys, thanks very much. Uh, terrific discussion. Absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, really appreciate it. Look forward to continuing uh, the dialogue and, and the discussion. And, uh, on, and for both of you, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret.